Welcome back to the Core EM Podcast. Core content for anyone, anywhere, and just in time. This is the official podcast of the NYU Bellevue EM Residency Program. I'm Anand Swami Nathan. And I'm Jenny Beck Esme. So Jenny, this week we had a workshop on life-threatening causes of upper GI bleed. So I thought we could discuss some of the big points from this particular session. Sounds good. So for basic definition purposes, upper GI bleed is defined as bleeding in the GI system proximal to the ligament of trites. Realistically, in the ED, we don't typically know exactly where the blood is coming from, but we get concerned about upper GI bleeds if either the patient has hematemesis, coffee ground emesis, or melanoma or black stool. Yeah, many times this is going to be by history alone. The patient's going to tell you that they vomited blood before they came in, or they've been having dark stools or dark red or maybe even black stool the last couple days. Once I hear either of these, I get pretty concerned. Often these patients will be unstable on presentation, but even if they're not, they are ticking time bombs. Something is bleeding, and it could open up at any time. In these cases, I'm putting the patient on continuous cardiac monitoring. I'm going to set that auto BP to cycle every 5 to 10 minutes, and the patient's going to get two large bore IVs, 18 gauge or larger, and we're going to start our resuscitation and diagnostics simultaneously. Yeah, that's critical. In these patients, as with many ED presentations, we're not doing diagnostics and then treating. We're going to be doing all of this concurrently. So while we're getting started, I'm going to consider my differential and try and get history or physical exam features that point me toward a diagnosis. The big ones I'm considering are esophageal varices, peptic ulcer, aortoenteric fistula, Borhoff syndrome, which we just covered back in podcast 66, and massive hematocysts. And sometimes it isn't really clear if the blood is coming from the respiratory or the GI tract. The first two, ulcers and varices, are the most common causes and the ones I typically end up focusing on. I think that's a great list to start with. While you and your team are considering these causes, you're going to want to address some of those major issues up front. If the patient's hemodynamically unstable, activate your massive transfusion protocol, much like you would do in a trauma patient. Upper GI bleeders can rapidly lose blood volume and often have huge transfusion requirements. If the patient's on anticoagulation, reverse it. Coumadin is going to be the most common one that we see, and while PCC may drop the INR fast, it's never been shown to improve outcomes. In fact, FFP may be more beneficial here because the patients are likely to need volume in addition to getting the factors that are going to help them clot. Now, TXA has been used here, but the most recent Cochrane review does not show any benefit. So what about the airway? Yes, we need to address the circulation and hemodynamic instability, but do we need to control the airway? You know, this often comes up and there's no right answer. It's really a bedside call. These patients are aspiration risks. They can become obtunded. And while I find that hypoxia and hypercarbia are later findings, they do happen frequently as well. In general, if the patient has active hematemesis, I want to control that airway. And if the patient needs to get emergent endoscopy, which many of these patients will, I like to control the airway as well. And we'll talk a little bit more about endoscopy, but a bad time to try and intubate a patient is when they lose their protective reflexes, they have massive vomitus while the endoscope is in their gullet. Jenny, any intubation tricks that you've picked up? Well, Scott Weingart has an amazing podcast on intubating the GI bleeder, and we'll drop a link to that podcast in the show notes. It really tackles this question well. A couple of big tips I've picked up are, first, consider dropping the NG tube prior to intubation to decompress the stomach. Two, get double or even triple suction set up for your intubation because you want to keep the airway clear of blood. 
Three, intubate with the head of the bed up to decrease the chance of the stomach contents or the blood getting past the lower esophageal sphincter. And then four, as always, if the patient is hypotensive or shocky already, go low on your induction agent dose and high on the paralytic dose. That's an excellent set of tips. Let's give them one more time. Empty the stomach with an NG tube if time permits. Multiple suction setups that are ready to go. Head up for intubation and high paralytic, low induction dose. Along with the suction setups, I like to use a standard geometry blade with video so that I can give the suction to an assistant, let them watch on the monitor, and they can suction as I go. Basically offloads that task to somebody else so I can focus simply on passing the tube. Now, once again, check out Scott's podcast on the topic for a more detailed review. Now, before we get to the common causes, the varices and the ulcers, let's just talk a little bit about aortoenteric fistula. So this is a connection between the aorta and the esophagus and will often present with either hematemesis or melana. These patients typically look very sick. They have active bleeding in front of you and they are hemodynamically unstable. The patient may be lucky enough to present with a herald bleed, a small GI bleed that spontaneously clots off, but this is actually pretty uncommon. Yeah, these are uncommon in general. And so we don't have a ton of data on exactly how these patients come in, but overall, they're really scary. Aortoenteric fistulas, I've seen two, both of them decompensated rapidly. Nobody made it past the OR. So these are not these kind of slow trickling GI bleeds usually. Now, what I've learned from the cases that I've seen and from what I've read and talked to way smarter people than me is that you have to suspect this in any patient who's got a history of an aortic repair, whether that be AAA or dissection, or they simply got a history of an unrepaired aortic pathology. If they have one of those and they've got any GI bleeding, just assume that the aortoenteric fistula is what's going on, call CV surgery, call vascular, depending on the location of the aortic pathology, call GI, get your consultants involved early. If the patient is stable, you can get them over to CT for diagnosis, but don't delay consultation for imaging. In both of the patients I had, we rapidly consulted these services, and they went to the operating room without any imaging done. Aortic pathology plus GI bleed equals an aortoenteric fistula until proven otherwise. All right, so moving on from the disastrous and terribly frightening to just the really scary, let's talk about varices and ulcers. Many patients who present with variceal bleeding will tell you that they've got known varices or have had variceal bleeding in the past. If not, you may be tipped off by the presence of the stigmata of liver cirrhosis, so jaundice, spider angiomas, and the presence of ascites. That's an excellent point. If they don't carry the diagnosis of varices, the gross exam findings may make you move more towards varices than another source. Now, if I got nothing to go on, I kind of tend to assume varices because that's the worst of what's left over. Now, for ulcer as well, sometimes the patient's going to give you a good history that makes you focus in on that, things like gnawing abdominal pain or abdominal pain going to the back, but you're not always going to get that either. Let's start with the variceal bleed. After considering airway control, getting in your resuscitation lines and activating your massive transfusion protocol, where do you go next? I'm going to get GI on the phone as early as possible since the patient is going to need a scope and an intervention from them that I can't do, and getting them in and set up will take some time. I'm transfusing packed red blood cells and giving FFP most likely since their clotting function is going to be compromised. If the platelets are less than 50,000, they're going to get platelets too. Now, as far as medications, there are three big ones we need to consider. Antibiotics, a PPI, and octreotide. The antibiotics are the ones that often get forgotten, but maybe the most important. The antibiotics are prophylactic for the infection these patients get if they survive their initial resuscitation. 
And the Cochrane Collaborative published a nice systematic review on this back in 2010, which showed an NNT of 22 for mortality and an NNT of four for infection. This means for every 22 patients with variceal bleeds who get prophylactic antibiotics, we'll save one life. And for every four that get it, we'll prevent one infection. Those are pretty incredible numbers. I typically use a third-generation cephalosporin like ceftriaxone, but fluoroquinolones have also been looked at and seem that they're appropriate as well. Well, the antibiotics are a no-brainer. It's the octreotide and PPI drips that I often see called for first, but the evidence here isn't really as good. The typical protocol is to give a bolus and a continuous infusion of your PPI, but the Cochrane review on this intervention demonstrates no significant benefit in any meaningful patient-oriented outcomes. Typically, though, your GI consultant wants it, so it gets done. The key is to make sure you don't prioritize this over the life-saving interventions like blood and antibiotics. Octreotide's not much better here either. Physiologically, it makes sense. The drug should shunt blood away from the varices, but once again, the literature doesn't really defend use. No benefit in any patient-oriented outcome. So once again, there's not really any proven harm. So if your consultant wants it, go ahead and start it. Just don't let it get in the way of other things that are more important and don't let it delay what needs to be done. I have to say, this all seems pretty fatalistic. PPIs don't work. Octreotide doesn't work. There's no evidence that TXA works. So how do you do the meds in real life? So while I'm doing my initial evaluation, activating massive transfusion, deciding whether to control the airway or not, I'm paging GI to scope. I'm going to give the ceftriaxone early on, and if GI wants, I'll run the PPI in and the octreotide while they're coming in. Now, there's also some evidence that drugs like erythromycin might help with gastric emptying, so it makes GI's job a little easier when they scope. Reglan can help with this as well, metoclopramide, by emptying the stomach. Now, again, there's no problem for me with starting the PPI and the octreotide. I recognize they're unlikely to help, but I don't want to put up any barriers because I want that GI doc to come in. Now, while they're coming in, while they're getting everything set up, and Jenny, I'm not asking them to take the patient off to their suite, the endo suite, to do this scope. I just tell them to bring the stuff down, and we'll do it right in the ED. It's a little bit easier, and it's better for the resuscitation. While I'm waiting for them to do all of that, I'm also going to think about doing a TIPS procedure, the transjugular intrahepatic portosystemic shunt. This can be life-saving, so calling interventional radiology is going to be really helpful because, again, those people tend not to live in the hospital after hours when these patients like to come in. So get them on the phone, tell them to get into the hospital that you might need them to go to IR. If the patient continues to have massive hemorrhage despite your resuscitation and GI either isn't soon to scope or they can't get the bleeding to stop, you may need to drop a Blakemore or a Minnesota tube. These are definitely a bit of a Hail Mary, but it's within our skill set, so we need to know how to do it. MRAP HD has some great videos on this, and we'll link to their site in the show notes. So that's the initial management of the variceal bleed. Anything different if you're more worried about a bleeding ulcer? Well, here the antibiotics aren't going to make sense, and the octreotide doesn't pathophysiologically make sense either. The PPI drip would seem to make sense, but once again, the data doesn't show a significant benefit. We're left kind of with blood products, reversal of anticoagulation, and getting the endoscopy done ASAP. Now, before we were talking about tips and IR, obviously that's not going to be really helpful here either in the massively bleeding patient with an ulcer, but a general surgeon can be extremely helpful. Remember, the patient has a lot of blood. Endoscopy is unlikely to be able to find that bleeding source, so get your general surgeon involved. These patients sometimes need to go to the operating room for either direct control, a partial gastrectomy. Sometimes they can even cover the ulcer with other tissue and over-sew that ulcer so that it doesn't have many problems. Either way, get your surgeon on board early. 
Yeah, it seems like one of the major themes here is to call early for your consultant and get them involved. Absolutely. The thing is that we like to do everything on our own, but I can't do an EGD. I can't do a tips and I can't open a belly. So you really need your consultants to come in and help with this. Our job is to resuscitate the hemorrhagic shock, reverse the anticoagulation, and then get those consultants involved early on to take the patient off for a procedure. What about intubating prior to endoscopy? All right. So again, nothing's 100%, but I almost always will control the airway prior to scope if the patient has active bleeding. And again, the reason here is I don't want them to open up and have more bleeding while the endoscope is there. I've had a couple of bad cases where the patient looked pretty good, but they decompensated during endoscopy and now the airway was full of blood, much more difficult for us to handle. What I'd prefer to do is to resuscitate the patient as much as I can, get them to a little bit more of a hemodynamically stable place, and then take over the airway before they get scoped. And again, my preference is to have the endoscopist do that endoscopy in the emergency department where I can continue to resuscitate the patient actively. Again, the endoscopy suite, not a good place to have your massive transfusion protocol running. Now, if they scope them, they take care of something simply, well, I can always extubate the patient afterwards. It's really not that big a deal. All right, Jenny, that's a bit of a longer podcast than we usually do. Let's wrap it up with some take-home points. Right. So first, respect the upper GI bleed. These patients can bleed a lot. Even if they're not actively hemorrhagic in front of you, realize that they can open up at any time and decompensate. Second, get your consultants on board early. A skilled endoscopist is your friend, as they can get control of the bleeding. Also, don't forget IR for tips in variceal bleeds and general surgery in bleeding ulcers. Third, Activate your massive transfusion protocol if the patient is unstable and give the patient packed red blood cells, FFP, and platelets as indicated, and then reverse any anticoagulation as well. And last, give all patients with confirmed or suspected variceal bleeding antibiotics, typically ceftriaxone. This intervention saves lives and decreases morbidity. All right, that's a great summary, and we have some absolutely excellent links in the show notes. So check those out from MCRIT on how to intubate these patients, some of the basics. We have a couple of links to the NNT, and then if you've never placed a Blakemore before, the MRAP HD videos are absolutely crucial. All right, that's all for the Core EM podcast this week. Come on over and check out the site at coreem.net. We've got a ton of great core content, emergency medicine. We'll have a core post up on Wednesday and a journal update up on Thursday. Don't forget to check out our Facebook page, follow us on Google+, and on Twitter where our handle is at core underscore EM. Thanks. See you all next week.